0: Come in.
1: Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late, the to train the
0: train. Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. It's Employee of the Month with Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus.
1: Welcome to Employee of the Month. And in this episode, I spoke with Nicholas Kristoff, the Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the New York Times, where he's been since 2001. His focus tends to be on social issues as well as social activism. He's won two Pulitzers, one for his coverage of Tiananmen Square and the other um, for coverage of genocide in Darfur. And he actually received a one of the Pulitzer Prizes with his wife, Cheryl Dunn. They are co-authors of five books together, and they are also the only couple in history to have uh, jointly won a Pulitzer Prize. It was really... Fascinating to talk to him about whether empathy can be taught and how does it help to be a white American male and how doesn't it help? I forgot to ask him if he's ever heard the phrase, oh, Bruni, it's twee and it's in Ghana. Um, well, I just want to apologize for butchering the phrase, but the essence of it is a white man, why? And I think you'll understand why I'm asking that question when you hear our interview. I also want to say that Nicholas Kristoff is a super dork. He was very upset uh, that we didn't use real wood and also that I asked him to wear safety goggles. He refused. You're probably wondering, what am I talking about since this was taped live at the public theater? Good question, but you'll find out in our interview. And I want to thank Master & Dynamic for generously contributing these terrific headphones that I'm using right now. It was so kind, and I want to thank the Harnish Foundation and Awesome Without Borders for contributing as well. You can, too. You can go to employeeofthemonthshow.com and donate on PayPal, uh, listen to our interview, and you'll see why it means a great deal um, to get involved. All right. Here it is. Enjoy. Um, welcome.
0: Great to be here.
1: And I should have mentioned the Anne Frank Award as well as the International um, Freedom Conductor Award as
0: well. Well, the most important is you have to come tonight.
1: Yes. <laughs> um, as a black lesbian, what inspired you to join these elite, you know, pretty much white male bastions like the New York Times and Harvard and, and Oxford? What, what inspired you to? I thought oh I would
0: bring diversity, you know. You thought
1: you would bring diversity to them. I screwed that question up. <laughs> I meant to say, what inspires you to focus on um, gender parity and genocide and social stratification around the world?
0: You know, it's really a function of the kind of reporting that I do, that once you... I mean, I, I've written a lot about sex trafficking, and that all happened by accident, because way back uh, many years ago, I was in Cambodia and spent an afternoon with two girls, one 14, who had been kidnapped and were locked up in a brothel. And it felt uh, just like 19th century slavery, except they were going to be dead of AIDS by their 20s. And it's very hard to go from that to writing again about exchange rates, and it kind of haunts you. And so many of the other kinds of issues that I write about, it it stemmed from uh, one one trip to Darfur or one one thing, and then it just uh, it gets a hold of you, and I keep on I can't I can't escape it.
1: Um, what are the benefits of being a white American male when you're talking to people, and what are also the challenges?
0: You know, I mean, it's actually um, it's kind of astonishing that. Uh, in writing about really sensitive issues uh, like sexual violence, uh, then I can uh, plunk myself into Darfur or Eastern Congo or, uh, or Cambodia, wherever it may be. And I'm essentially a Martian. And people are willing to tell me things that they wouldn't tell their villagers about. A lot of these things involve a certain amount of shame, and yet there's no real shame in Martians knowing and so people are willing to sometimes um, confide to a sympathetic person from a different world. And also I think it's nice therapeutic to tell somebody as long as your neighbors don't know.
1: Are there any challenges that you like I think I would feel uncomfortable opening up. Do you face any challenges with, with um, people who haven't met you before, may not speak the same language or maybe of a different gender?
0: Well, I mean, the biggest challenges are the people who are trying to kill you for the reporting you're doing. Okay, and so that's kind of the starting point, and getting there, and then getting the story, and trying to verify it, and and it's very hard to. I mean, maybe maybe one of the most difficult is that somebody is telling you a story of of uh, of their family being killed or whatever it may be, and your inclination of course is to be incredibly sympathetic but you also have to verify and to try to ask skeptical questions of somebody for whom you feel enormous sympathy is very counterintuitive and, and really does feel awkward.
1: What do you do when your um, source or the person you're talking to is less credible than you initially thought or a shorter way to say that is um, what do you think about Suleiman, you know, inspired you to believe her story and what do you do differently now?
0: So, um, and so, you may want
1: to explain who yeah, she is so, to folks. So, Snolly
0: uh is a Cambodian woman who had written a memoir about uh, having been trafficked as a young girl, uh, then started an organization to fight sex trafficking in Cambodia. And uh, she's somebody who I uh, visited her work a number of times, I admired her a great deal. I think she did tremendous work fighting trafficking. I also, uh, Newsweek, about maybe two years ago, or uh, uh, raised a lot of serious questions about her backstory. And I think in the end that she embellished her backstory. Um, and, um,
1: Are there things you can do as a reporter to avoid that? Like having had this happen a couple of times. I mean, if you look at the number of people you've interviewed, it's a very small fraction where this has turned out. It's a minuscule, but... But I was just curious. Like, are there things you can do to avoid this, or is it just inevitable that, like, you know, every fifty millionth person you interview is is going to be? You know, there
0: there are things you can do that fraud. will reduce um, the risk, and you can try to uh, triangulate with other people. Um, you also look for information that is that is um, the opposite of self-serving. Things that paint somebody in a in a bad light, or that don't fit in a in a convenient narrative. Um, but at the end of the day. Uh, I mean, that doesn't always work, as as Simeli yeah. uh, shows.
1: And, that, and I was also asking in part, because there's um, been so much of a challenge, you know, reporting on rape recently. I was thinking about the Rolling Stone trial and what's going on with Columbia University, and what made me most sad as a reader was that it wasn't clear how reporters should best tackle those issues, and I was curious if you had any tips on that.
0: You know, I mean, I think that our impulse is... Uh, of course, to you know, to, to believe victims and people who are suffering. And one of the things that I really learned covering uh, the Tiananmen Square massacre in China... Yeah. I was on Tiananmen Square. I saw the troops open fire. It was one of the formative... Uh, I was in the crowd that they opened fire on. People around me were being shot, and it was a very formative experience. And obviously, we were all, as journalists, sympathizing with the students who were being massacred, but it also became apparent that the students were lying... As much as the government, and that's something I've seen again and again that victims exaggerate as well, and and
1: because we're all human is what as you're, well yeah.
0: as the perpetrators, and and you do them no favors by. Avoiding being skeptical that uh, you know, you have to ask skeptical questions try to find witnesses try to find photos Whatever it may be and and use uh, You know be wary in in your in your body counts or whatever the numbers are um, uh, Because you do people no favor by giving a an outlet for exaggerations.
1: But at the same time, it's so hard because you want to empathize with the underdog, be it someone who's, you know, courageous enough to come forward about sexual assault or, uh, you know, a young black kid. You know, I mean, th- this is the, where I think it's easy to let emotions...
0: It's very, I mean, it's very human both to exaggerate when terrible things have been done to you and to um, to be sympathetic to that. Uh, and one of the hardest things, you know, as a journalist, and it's one you know, I fail at and other people fail at is, is to maintain that skeptical distance from somebody to whom terrible things have happened, who, you know, whose parents have been massacred, whose kids have been killed, who has been raped. And uh, it's, you know, if somebody says they've been raped eight times, how do you, how do you say, oh, you know, they've, you know, you were skeptical that it was eight, that it was only three. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly wow. sort of, it's, it's, it's incredibly awkward to do these things and yet you sort of owe it to your readers and to the profession to try to to try to verify to the extent possible
1: is empathy something that can be taught
0: oh you know i Boy, I just look around the political system today and I think empathy is our number one problem. Kind of the starting point that we have this big empathy gap and that if you want to address issues of race or gender or poverty, then a starting point is to talk about empathy. And I do absolutely think that it can be um, taught, nurtured. We have a certain amount of of practical experiments on that. You uh, read a literary passage And if you're tested afterward in psychology experiments, you feel more empathy.
1: Um, So we just have to read more books. (laughs) Wouldn't it be (laughs) like read the New York Times, read my columns? (laughs) Okay, but wouldn't it be more human? I would imagine it would be more human contact. No.
0: You know, I I think that um, uh, I mean in race, for example, a lot of it is having friends from. A different background Uh, one of the things that strikes one in this country is that the 20% of wealthiest Americans donate less to charity as percentage of incomes than the poorest 20% of Americans and the reason is as a fraction of incomes that is and, and the reason is is that if you are affluent in America today then by and large you live insulated from need while if you are poor in America today then every day you encounter people poorer than yourself and confronted by that need, you respond, you reach out.
1: What is the best way, that's a perfect segue, which you didn't even know. Um, so someone gave me this bag, uh, this burlap sack, and I went online, and the bag goes for $200. And I thought, God, why don't you just give... And it's supposed to raise money for Kenyans, and part of me felt like, why don't you just give... I'd, I'd be happier if you like wrote a check, $200 to something besides giving me a burlap sack. It's kind of an ugly bag, too. So I guess like... You know, I felt bad because it's hard to know, like, what is giving today? Like, some people will retweet a tweet about, you know, war or buy this or go to a very fancy fundraiser. Um, and if you're going, I'm happy to be your date. But I just <laughs> meant, like, you know, what are the best ways, realistically, to, to give in a way that you feel is meaningful?
0: Um, you know, I think that one of the things that... A younger generation of millennials is doing, kind of teaching everybody how to give in a bigger way. For the, for my generation, giving was essentially writing a check toward the end of the year to some organization. I think for a lot of young people, it's also uh, who you volunteer for, it's the company you work for, it's the the, the goods you purchase, the places you purchase them. Um, it's kind of the values you project in a day-to-day basis. It's the how you invest your assets as well, and so it's much more three hundred and sixty.
1: Okay, I feel like we all do that, but all right.
0: Oh no, no that's a really. I mean, if you look at uh, how people choose their employers, oh. uh, my generation basically chose their employers on right. personal satisfaction. Young people want to go to a company with values, which can be. Hard.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Look at Google. You could have thought you were going there and thought it was a really good idea and a really innovative company, which it is, but it also does things that aren't.
0: You know, one of the things that is so frustrating is that companies, it would be in their interest to try to project value, especially those with brands, to engage in corporate social responsibility that would really do something. And yet, you look around the landscape, and especially some of these. Tech companies that really have brands that they need to care about—they have lousy social responsibility programs. I mean, Google is an example example of where corporate social responsibility started out in a big way, but re- basically is has become kind of meaningless. Apple, huge, hugely important brand, yeah. and yet they have essentially zero corporate social responsibility.
1: Um, now, war reporters—I feel like you know—if a bomb goes off or you hear that there's guerrilla warfare, like most of us will run in the other direction. Whereas like war reporters run towards it. I was just curious, like what went wrong in your childhood?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, It's always funny to, when there is some crisis, um, then, of course, planes are sent to evacuate people. And on the planes going into the spot, you have all these, uh, you know, it's me and various other people all pretending to be tourists, all carrying these very large cameras, concocting stories about why they need large cameras. And usually it's, oh, we're going to shoot weddings in, you know, in the middle of war-torn Cairo or Syria or (laughs) wherever it may be. Um, But I must say that if... From a normal perspective, the reporters seem completely crazy. From our perspective, it's those photographers and camera folks who are just incredible. I mean, they, they have to be right there when the bullets are going off. And my, my first rule of war reporting is you never accept a car ride from a photographer because when they control the car and they hear gunfire, they go right to it. Uh, it's fine to give them a ride in your car, but never accept a ride from a photographer in a war zone.
1: This is very good. This is for anyone on Tinder or OK Cupid. Remember this <laughs> when you guys are going on these blind dates. Um, so I also wanted to ask um, you: got your start in journalism quite young? You were 14 months old, and what, from there, if we can show the picture, Jason. I was just curious if, if that was your initially inspired you to go to the other side and and. Uh, report on things versus being covered.
0: Yeah. Um, a minor in
1: sunbathing, Nick Kristoff, 14 months, watches co-eds go by as mother, um, Mrs. Jane Kristoff, <laughs> art major, studies on steps of Lowell Memorial Library at Columbia. You do good
0: research. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs>
1: um, so after this, were you like, I'm through being a, uh, you know, a model, cover model, and I want to, cover things
0: yeah I wanted to be going from being in the photos to shooting the photos
1: Um, and I mean because I did look in addition to being before now you know that you can add an award for a whole month but as a child you thought you could only have one for a week you got the neighbor of the week award (laughs) Um, and but it just shows how politically involved you were from the get-go I mean at age 15 what do you attribute your inspiration for for becoming so enormously involved at such a young age
0: um, my parents were very, uh, engaged and, uh, my dad was a World War II refugee. Um, and, uh, you know, I, in a lot of the things that I do, one of the basic questions is, uh, that the problems seem so vast that we can never solve them. And I always thought that my dad's life was of a response to that because a American family offered him a place in the U.S., it didn't solve the global refugee problem. It didn't make a dent in the global refugee problem, but was completely transformative yeah. for him and you know, and for me. And that's what we have the power to do. We, we may not be able to solve problems. We can certainly transform the lives of individual people.
1: And I think move, each generation move a little bit forward. Like my mom was extremely crazy. I'm like relatively crazy. <laughs> like, you know, each generation we go forward Progress, a little evolution. bit. Progress, evolution. You know, um, but now she's lovely. Um, And, um, the other thing I wanted to ask, well, I think actually we should, we should take a, the lost in translation stuff. When you have an editor or sorry, a translator, you know, i I've heard you speak French and I just imagine some things get lost. I know you speak, um, Mandarin fluently, but I, I just imagine some things must get lost in translation, like, uh, even in, in Mandarin, if you don't do the right tone and things like that. Um, how do you deal with that kind of stuff?
0: Do um, you want me to teach you a key word of, key phrase of Mandarin?
1: As long as I don't offend everyone in the room, yes. Okay. <laughs> My apologies uh, well, in advance. So, yeah. the,
0: so Mandarin has four tones, and uh, um, it's uh, even tone, ma, uh, rising tone, ma. Uh,
1: ma, Falling ma. and
0: rising, ma. Ma. And
1: ma. then down, ma. Ma.
0: Very good. And uh, so one of the crucial <laughs> distinctions. <laughs> Very, yeah. Chinese speaker. So one of the crucial distinctions is between "qing uh, wen," which is may ask you a question, and "qing wen," which is can I kiss you? It's very important to get that right. Qing
1: <laughs> wen is can I kiss you?
0: Qing wen, wen, can I kiss you? Qing wen, when? When?
1: When? When?
0: Yeah, that's kiss. Okay. And when? When? Is ask.
1: When? Yeah. When? When? Like, how do you say, like, when can I kiss you?
0: <laughs> Very good.
1: Okay, good. We'll leave it there. Um, I, I think because we've, we have talked a little bit about genocide and things like that, I do want to encourage people to check out your, your book here. I know you have five, but, but the most recent one. Um, but I also was going to just have a palate cleanser. This is a phenomenal book because it gives actual resources as to what you can do to create change. Um, but as a palate cleanser, I wanted to show, um, some kittens because I know we've had some very serious talk Aww. and it's a, a Thursday evening. Just wanted everyone to transition to the next part of the interview. This is, everyone's better now. This is what BuzzFeed does. This is exactly what BuzzFeed does. <laughs> okay. You ever switch models. <laughs> Do you ever think about going out on your, your own, um, you know, there have been a, a tremendous rise in, in people, um, starting their own places, um. Like, am I allowed to say anything? <laughs> like, no? Yes? Like, some people in the audience may have gone off on their own. They may have defected from the New York Times, Nate Silver. And um, <laughs> do you ever feel like y- you you would go off on your own?
0: Um, you know, you, you never say never, but I have a wonderful, I have an amazing real estate at the Times, and the Times has been so good about being willing to send me off to places like Darfur to provide security in places like Syria to, and it really has been a wonderful home for me. So, um,
1: what are your frequent flyer miles like?
0: I well, you've been to one hundred and
1: forty countries.
0: No, I'm I'm probably pushing one hundred and sixty by now.
1: Sorry, I apologize. (laughs)
0: Um, But uh, unfortunately, a lot of them are on airlines that you know, you would never, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to have a lot of airlines. I know Air Iraq or, you know, Afghan Air. <laughs>
1: right. My dad, like, I remember when ValueJet crashed, like, the day after, he immediately got me tickets on that one. But that one doesn't exist anymore. Um, so, my, my uh, uh, last question is about growing up on a sheep farm. How did that in- inspire you or uh, you know, help you? It was an adorable photo of you. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you do amazing research. I'm impressed. Um,
1: how did that prepare you um, for sitting at a desk?
0: Uh, you know, I must say that growing up on a farm is just a, um, uh, it's just a wonderful lifestyle for a kid. It has, um, it has made me kind of a scourge of modern industrialized farming because I think that so many problems that we have uh, today... Involve uh, an industrial farming model that has been bad for rural America, bad for farmers, bad for food, uh, bad for the way we treat animals, uh, bad for our public health in terms of providing, you know, antibiotics to animals, and uh, you know, bad for overuse of resources like water. Um, so I think that the industrial model of agriculture has been at the heart of a broad range of problems across the country and as somebody who grew up on a farm, I kind of feel some responsibility to try to whack away at it periodically.
1: Uh, is, is, uh, yeah, I thought, definitely, absolutely. Great for money,
0: though, great for money.
1: Um, is, is goat and sheep cheese, are they easier to digest than, than uh, dairy?
0: I have no idea. I okay. mean, as a sheep farmer, I'll so, stand that's... up for sheep cheese, but I, I have no idea. Okay,
1: well, we were gonna have you shear a sheep, but... But um, I couldn't find one that I, you know, could get home by 11 o'clock, and I, I feel like this this one might be harder to, to, to vaccinate or shear. Um, this is
0: a pretty pathetic sheet.
1: I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> We've got it's a limited bad. theater theater budget. Bad. It's very sweet. This sheep. it's gonna it's gonna go with the back. But Somebody
0: I, already sheared it, though. I think.
1: No, no. This is how they come. This is a, this is how it comes. Oh, yeah. Maybe it was sheared already. <laughs> um, but so. I was gonna ask if you might uh, chop wood because I I know that you. um, everyone knows how brilliant you are and um, I'm beyond grateful for the work you do doing both social activism and um, journalism combined in a way that allows people like me to um, learn what else is out there that I can uh, sink my teeth into. So I'm very grateful for that. But I I did wanna show off that you're you're also, uh, unlike I assume most reporters, pretty uh, strong.
0: Um, <laughs> well we'll put that to the test I guess
1: <laughs> um, So you had said that you know how to chop wood So I got you a special axe um, And some wood uh,
0: <laughs> Wood?
1: <laughs> wood? I feel like Duraflame That's what everyone uses right? I think this is chemicals more than wood <laughs> Okay, but, but it's not going to kill anyone We, we researched okay. it before we were worried about the danger. And then um, I have goggles <laughs> somewhere in here. And then the axe is right below. You wanna grab the axe?
0: It's gonna be like a, a Gallagher performance. Safety yeah. goggles. What could Hopefully. go wrong? That's the best thing that could happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised they trusted me with this in here.
1: Yeah, good question.
0: Uh, should we remove that safety? I don't, I don't, safety know, if, I don't awesome. know if that
1: was I this don't know is if they terrifying. know. <laughs> About to get your money's worth, front row. I think,
0: I think I'll let you wear those. Okay, no self-respecting wood going can be seen with those.
1: These are hot. This is a new look. Um, all right, let's put that Duraflame log up. You don't put it on the side?
0: Should we, uh... Yeah, shouldn't we take it out of the plastic? I have
1: no idea. I, uh do my own laundry. I have a Swiffer. I don't even mop properly. Oh, my
0: God.
1: Yeah, you guys How excited are you guys that you ordered late and got your tickets back there?
0: <laughs> Front row, cover your eyes. Front row, cover your eyes. <laughs>
1: I like that he laughs as he says that. <laughs> oh no no no! Direct hit. Wait, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Don't hurt me over a metro card.
0: Uh, I remember Christmases where we were just splitting the dirt
1: flame. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! All right. Here are your glasses. I want to give you um some treats. The axe is yours to keep if you'll use it. Will you put it to good use, the axe? Uh, uh, I got you a backpack because I know that you go on these long hikes. And I got oh, you some, wow. some GORP from the uh, Park Slope Co op. Um, I cannot thank you enough for your tremendous contribution um, to society. I mean, you're really helping change lives, and I, I say that as one person who has certainly been impacted you at, by you, and I know so many more as well here. Um, please get a path <laughs> to peers. Thank you so much, Nick. Thanks so much. that's it for this episode of employee of the month show thank you to ian Mazal for editing this together thanks to all of you for listening and i'll talk to you really soon enjoy your summer i hope it is not as hot and humid as it is in this um incredible voiceover booth aka my closet talk soon